Welcome to Intelligence Talks. I'm your host, Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst here at Knight Frank. And today I'm joined by Graham Cooley. Graham is CEO of Hydrogen Specialist ITM Power, which is based in Sheffield and has the world's largest electrolyzer facility. I'm also joined by David Goatman, who's Head of Energy and Sustainability across EMEA at Knight Frank. David was formerly a Senior Sustainable Development Advisor during the 2012 London Olympics. He's also an advisory board member at the London Centre for Climate Change Innovation. A warm welcome to you both, David and Graham, and thank you for being on the podcast this morning. Thanks, Anna. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Anna. Delighted to be here. So to kick things off, the Treasury is concerned about the cost of net zero, while the government is also delayed in publishing its heat and building strategy, which will detail plans for overhauling the country's heating systems and critically, who will pay for them. So in its hydrogen strategy this week, the UK government said a strategic decision on the role hydrogen could take in decarbonising heating buildings will also be taken within five years. So, Graham, we'll start with you. After the release of the hydrogen strategy, there was actually a bit of confusion in the press around how many homes will actually be heated by hydrogen by 2030. Are you able to give us, say, a figure of UK households that will be using hydrogen in the future. If you compare hydrogen to, say, air source heat pumps, how commonly used do you think hydrogen will will be by the sort of average UK household? Well, the simple answer to that is no, I won't be able to give you that answer because the government's strategy has not been defined. Mm. The answer to that is a very clear no. Okay. And David, with that in mind, just given the uncertainty there in in residential heating and, and that kind of thing, David, how are you approaching this in terms of your advice to developers and how they can make sure that they're prepared um, for net zero in the future? Yeah, it's a really topical uh, question. And as Graham mentioned, a a lot kind of hinges off what the government strategy says and what people are incentivised to do. So far, there's obviously no uh, wide-scale use of hydrogen. It's, it's, It's all gas and then heat pumps where people are trying to move to a more electrified base for moving away from gas within residential developments or indeed within office buildings where there's a big move towards net zero obviously at the moment so you know full electric new build office developments are becoming a lot more common there's challenges to every option and the experience on the ground with actually operating and managing buildings that have had large-scale heat pumps put in is not that great. It's a new technology for people. The costs for operating are a lot higher than were anticipated in in the case of a lot of the residential buildings that, that we have under management at KF. And so I think there's clearly a big push from the designers to go for heat pumps because that's a technology they understand a lot more uh, at the moment. But actually then handing that over to somebody to operate the building it, it is not a, a simple process. And the costs around energy are incredibly high. <laughs> The wholesale power market's incredibly high and government can't just keep passing all of these costs through people's bills. You know, there are some difficult decisions to be made, whether that's general taxation or whether that's yet again putting it through people's bills as as a pass-through cost. Graham, have you got any thoughts there just on on the costs of of energy and whether there's an opportunity at least further down the line for hydrogen to become cheaper and therefore to become more commonly used in the real estate sector. I mean, I agree with everything that David said. And I think the first point to make is that getting to net zero is not going to be inexpensive. And governments all over the world are going to have to spend some money. You know, one of the key things is that we have the right policies in place, have the right funding in place, but also have an industry 
which manufactures some of this equipment and some uh, development of early expertise so that the buildings industry in the UK can offer services worldwide. But it, getting to net zero in the next 29 years, is it going to be a walk in the park? No, it's not. Is it going to mean that energy prices will go up? Well, inevitably, if the right solution for buildings is heat pumps or a combination of heat pumps and a decarbonised gas grid, and that, that is part of the solution. It may not be all of the solution. And electricity and heat pumps may be in addition to that solution. And you need to get the right solution applied in the right way. And different sized buildings and different types of dwellings will be different. I just wondered, David, is this, you know, is this in developer thinking currently? Are they kind of preparing for, you know, the decade of hydrogen beyond heat pumps, which are obviously a more viable renewable source currently to heat buildings? Is this something that they're already thinking about or is this more a sort of distant type of thinking currently? People are very aware of hydrogen. And I think the the case that Graham makes is a compelling one because you have the gas grid, you have significant constraints on the power network in the UK, a very significant investment needing to be going in in lots of different places across the grid to reinforce it and to build out greater capacity in order to take all of the varying inputs that are coming from new renewables developments. So the idea that we could just shift all of that energy requirement onto power, which is essentially what one would be doing with heat pumps, is not a a feasible solution on its own because you've then got a largely redundant gas grid sitting there and a power network that can't take what you're asking it to do. So the way I would categorise things at the moment is that people's ambition is moving ahead of where technology is at. There's a desire from people to build net zero buildings. That's become the common parlance of, of real estate development. If you look at some of the big propcos and REITs, they're now saying all of their new developments and, and, and their major refurbishments are going to be achieving uh, a net zero in build, so on an embodied carbon basis and also in operation. The only technology that really allows them to do that is an, an electrification technology at the moment because they can't put gas boilers in. So they're going down the heat pumps route. But I don't, I don't think there's sufficient understanding of the operation of those assets, whereas we know how gas boilers work. We know what the supply chain is to, to, to manage those buildings. We know what the costs are going to be. We know what the input cost of the gas is. The input cost of power into buildings has been going up hugely over the past 12 months. You know, since, since all time lows in the pandemic, it's flown back to nearly all time highs. So I, I do think that we are we're, we're, we're taking huge steps with heat pumps without necessarily fully knowing quite what we're going to be experiencing as we run them for 10 years in a building it's quite easy to design something and build it and then the designers go home and the contractor goes home but somebody's then got to work out of that building or live in that building and and where we have had problems in the past for example with district heating networks there's a lot of controversy and a lot of frankly dissatisfied occupiers of buildings when the costs go through the roof associated with heating uh, and, and power supply into their buildings so I think that the technology is in, in many ways not where ambition is. And there's this mm, arms race to say point. that development yeah. is net, net zero. And um, that seems to have overtaken everything else. Graham, just to touch on um, some of the press coverage that came out around the hydrogen strategy. Obviously, elephant in the room is clearly blue hydrogen. 
Just from your perspective as CEO of ITM Power, I mean, do you see blue hydrogen as a sort of inevitable transition while green energy is more expensive? Uh, what's your view on, on that? Blue hydrogen is oil and gas business as usual. It allows the oil and gas industry to continue using its existing methane infrastructure. And at the end, they say they're going to remove the CO2 and, and, and pay governments to store it in their offshore oil wells. And the UK taxpayer uh, will foot the bill for the liabilities of in, an increasingly large amount of CO2 storage. Uh, our view is that you don't make the CO2 in the first place. You make the hydrogen by splitting water using renewable power. And you start doing that right from the beginning because that is entirely net zero. And to say, well, it's more expensive in the early days, well, that is exactly what the power industry said about solar and wind years ago. I, used, I was business mm. development manager at National Power, which was the UK's largest power generator. And I lobbied for years for uh, solar and wind. And everybody said, well, you'll never scale it and it will never be the right cost. And they were just wrong. If you look at the Hydrogen Council, Bloomberg, Platts, they'll tell you that by between the mid-2020s and 2030, green hydrogen will be lower cost than blue hydrogen. Blue hydrogen cannot be deployed until the late 2020s. By that time, it will be a stranded asset and will be locked in to a methane infrastructure which leaks. And blue hydrogen is more carbonising than natural gas because of the inefficiencies of capture, because of having to use therm for therm more natural gas than, than you do when you, when you make blue hydrogen. And of course, you have all the liabilities of the infrastructure. You, you've seen the government now entirely reassessing blue versus green. So do you, do you think that the government could pivot then and um, back away from its kind of initial plank of relying on blue as part of the key strategy? Yeah, the Secretary for State for Bays who announced the hydrogen strategy, announced it at our Gigafactory. It came to ITM Power to open the world's largest electrolyzer factory, which is in Sheffield, with a capacity of 1,000 gigawatts per annum of electrolysis. We already have a backlog of 290 megawatts of equipment. Uh, you know, the medium is the message. They are moving to green hydrogen, as is mm. the whole of the hydrogen community. You've seen that with the Hydrogen Council, with Hydrogen Europe. I, I think that the process we're in at the moment is a further round of consultations. Um, some money okay. has been given to the oil and gas industry to do their feed studies to find out what the exact costs are of blue hydrogen because the costs of blue hydrogen are far more uncertain than green hydrogen. Interesting. Um, David, just to cast your mind back, obviously Graham has spoken about the evolution of wind and solar energy and so on. And obviously back in 2012, you were in an advisory role for the London Olympics. How would you say since then, for the real estate sector at least, thinking has changed? And I suppose, what have you learned over, over that decade in terms of how you think the real estate sector should sort of move forward obviously it's been a long time since then so what are your key thoughts around going forwards yeah it has been. it's it's flown by though as a decade it, it's changed a huge amount and i think what's really interesting about this conversation is that we're actually talking about the 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 infrastructure that is required to decarbonize buildings and a lot of the time when we talk about buildings we we 
we frankly just talk about nice things that we would like to happen. And everyone talks about how committed they are to something. But actually, I would say the real estate sector is lacking skills and knowledge and infrastructure. And I don't think most of the people who own buildings really know very much about the infrastructure related to those linking to those assets. I think one of the great things about the the Olympics project was that um, obviously we were putting in new infrastructure. So it was a real intersection point between, you know, building some fantastic new buildings, but also building what at the time was, um, you know, groundbreaking new infrastructure um, for that part of London. Um, I think the the evolution over the, over the past decade has obviously been a huge amount more renewables has been built. Lots more buildings now integrating renewables. The efficiency standards of buildings have moved on. Um, but in some ways, there isn't that much change because we're still building with district heating networks, which are gas-fired CHP engines in energy centres that are supplying the site. You know, we're we're still, yeah, you know, we've moved to a greater level of ambition in terms of BRIAM and uh, you know, as it was co-sustainable homes and other rating systems. But we're still, um, you know, we're still using in in many ways the same technologies as we were using ten years ago. But what was able to be achieved on the Olympics was because we had a large piece of land and a very finite deadline and significant capital to be able to build something that had to be built. Um, and therefore, you know, so, some fantastic things were achieved. I think if a similar thing was to be undergone now in, in the UK or in any other part of the Western world, you would find a lot more renewables. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like we almost need like a kind of wide scale event, which hasn't been possible due to COVID to sort of put that into action do you think just thinking about the run-up to COP26 in, in Glasgow there'll be something like that yeah I, I, I think obviously in Glasgow they you know with you know, major events around the world and as, as well they've there's a lot of reuse which is great of buildings whereas with the Olympics in 2012 we were building a lot new so that did enable a different approach to be taken so there's a difference between the the new build and the refurbishment marketplaces because we're only really building anywhere in the developed world circa 3% of, of stock new each year in terms of a renewal rate. So the vast majority of building stock's been built. And the real challenge that the buildings industry faces, whether it's in residential or commercial real estate, is in transiting those buildings. And there's a, a huge amount of work that's been, been going on in that space. And we've been involved for years with various EU schemes and even some of the quite innovative financing mechanisms behind it. But that challenge is still there and the government have tried you know well well intentioned policies such as the green deal and and more recently similarish attempts to to try and incentivize householders to green their properties but it's a huge challenge and until we address more of that 97% of buildings that are rolling year on year in their current state um, we're not actually going to make a significant impact upon decarbonising real estate and building nice, shiny, new zero carbon developments is great. And, and you know, we love, love those developments. But if you look at any big property company or any large REIT or any large property fund, how much as a percentage of AUM or as a percentage of square footage does that actually constitute? It's a tiny yeah. percent. It's a harsh reality, 200,000 square feet of new build net zero out of a 20 million yeah plus portfolio is you know one percent yeah it is it is worrying i mean all the retrofitting issues just don't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon uh graham just going to give you the final word on this perhaps for the real estate sector can hydrogen help in terms of these retrofitting issues going forward 
Is this going to be the answer? For me, a summary would be something like this. You, you know, um, the, the world only uses energy in two forms. It's electrons or molecules. And that's true of the building industry. You have two infrastructures coming in. You have the electricity one and you have the gas one, electrons and molecules. If we can uh, decarbonize all the electrons on the electricity grid and all the molecules in the gas grid by using green hydrogen, the building sector won't have to worry about new devices. It will have net zero coming into to their buildings via the existing infrastructure. You don't have to do anything infrastructurally. That's why everybody's looking at green hydrogen. What the building industry then needs to do is reduce its load. In other words, it needs to be looking at insulation, energy storage, uh, and also, most importantly, capturing some of the CO2 by planting some trees. So a responsibility for net zero that's much more appropriate for the building industry, building insulation and tree planting rather than having to worry about infrastructure. The infrastructure should be the government's responsibility. And that's why you want hydrogen in the gas grid and renewables on the electricity grid. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Graham. And I think I echo David's thoughts from earlier just on, you know, the fact the conversation is moving on to infrastructure is obviously very reassuring. Clearly, that is the missing piece and the government needs to really up its game there. So thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. For more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note, which goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. You can see our show notes for more details on that. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and listen out for our next episode in two weeks. Thank you for listening to this week's Intelligence Talks.